Today's episode of Dog Nation Daily is brought to you by Pella Window and Door of Georgia, viewed to be the best. Presented by DogNation.com, this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. Here's your host, Brandon Adams. Hey, Dog Nation, I'm Brandon Adams, and this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans, presented by Pella Window and Door of Georgia. Our new year begins much the same way the old year concluded. Still some challenges in terms of how we present this show to you on a daily basis, but nonetheless, we do persist and move on because there's plenty of good things to talk about the Georgia Bulldogs. So with that in mind, we begin today's show just slightly in progress here in the early breakdown of why there was a lot to like about Georgia winning against Florida State and why it helped the program in perhaps more ways than you realize. So thank you so much for being a part of the program. Let me use this as an analogy to set all this up. So yesterday... Uh, flying back home from, we were actually staying in Fort Lauderdale, flying from Fort Lauderdale back back home yesterday and sitting in the plane. And it's one of those things where like the video screen in front of you realize, oh, cool, it's got live TV. I said, oh, I wonder if I can find a football game on here. So you click over there, you go to CBS and uh, you see that Miami is playing the Baltimore Ravens, big NFL game. Now, let me give you an idea of the level of NFL fan that I am. And eventually this is going to kind of make sense as it relates to George football. I'm the sort of NFL fan that's very much the kind of classic casual fan. I have sort of a median level of knowledge probably about the NFL. For instance, I know that Baltimore is one of the better teams this year. I know that Miami's having a very good season. I, I, I know enough about the NFL to know that, but I do not know enough about the NFL to realize they're actually playing at 1 p.m. on Sunday. So when I'm fumbling around on that screen in front of me and I realize, oh, gosh, Baltimore, Miami, it's a 1 p.m. game here on a Sunday for me to watch on this TV, TV screen as I fly back to Atlanta, uh, my life couldn't be any better than that. I was very, very happy to kind of stumble upon this very pleasant surprise. I am the sort of casual NFL fan that kind of knows who the good teams are, knows who the good players are, but really had no idea of who's playing whom. On a particular Sunday, I'm pleasantly surprised to find that out. I say all of that to say this, that most of us have a hard time understanding that level of college football fan, because a lot of you who listen to me every day, you are very much like me. We are not casual college football fans. We are college football obsessives. We are in like the 99th point nine 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 percentile in terms of our deep knowledge and deep care for college football. We have intimate knowledge of everything that goes on with the sport, not just the games, but the recruiting, the transfer portal, and all the various news things that go on. We are entrenched in the world of college football, so we have a very hard time sometimes understanding how the median college football fan operates or necessarily feels about anything. So for those of us who like live in the world, deeply entrenched in college football, the Orange Bowl sort of feels like a glorified scrimmage. You know, it's Georgia, more at full strength. It's Florida State completely tapping out on the season, totally giving up, kind of totally moving on. And so, therefore, there seems to be a little bit of a subdued interest in the game because we kind of know a little bit of the backstory. But much like me, the casual NFL fan had no idea that Miami and Baltimore were even playing yesterday at 1 p.m. until I stumbled onto the game as I'm flying home. The average college football fan just does not live in the world of college football 365 days out of the year. I mean, average in terms of the fact that, you know, millions of people care about this sport, the kind of median fan, the sort of group of fans in the middle of the bell curve, right there at the top of the bell curve in terms of total numbers, they don't get all of that. And so what we saw on Saturday was a game in which 
people who are deeply entrenched, who live on social media, who live on message boards, uh, they're deeply entrenched. They kind of know, oh, it sort of feels like this game is less than a full football game. The casual college football fan, the average college football fan, they don't know that at all. They're just like me. They're sitting at home on a holiday weekend. They stumble on Georgia, Florida State, the Orange Bowl. That's awesome. Let me uh, let me lock in and be a part of this. They just sort of stumble in on this. And I got to tell you, that is a very good thing for Georgia for reasons I'm about to explain. First of all, let me back up this point by showing you something here. I believe we have this from Sports Media Watch on Twitter. Uh, Sports Media Watch letting you know that even though that Georgia beat Florida State by 60 points in the Orange Bowl, it was the most watched Orange Bowl that's not a playoff game since 2017. That gives you an idea of how different the sort of average casual college football fan operates in comparison to most of us who are very, very deeply entrenched, very, very immersed in college football culture. The average person is just at home during the holidays and they see the Orange Bowl. They're like, sign me up, Georgia versus Florida State. And those people, millions, what was it, 10 point uh, whatever, uh, you know, uh, t- t- 10 point something million uh, people that watched the game, those people saw Georgia look dominant. Those people saw Florida State look terrible. And the brand building that Georgia was able to do in that game and the brand tarnishing that Florida State had to endure, that very much matters. Georgia got bigger because of its win against Florida State in the eyes of America. And Florida State, who's already been told that it's a less than program because it comes from the ACC, the Florida State brand gets even smaller now that everybody in America saw them lose by 60 points. And you can go knock on all 10 million people who watch this game's doors and say, well, did you realize that so-and-so was opt-out and the quarterback was hurt? And the wah, 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 wah. Good luck telling 10 million people about that. They don't care. They just saw you get the brake speed off of you, and now they've moved on to something else. All of that matters. Now, the, the bad part of that, the negative part of that, is for Florida State to deal with and for Florida State to worry about. But on the good part of this for Georgia, for the 10 million-plus people who tuned in to watch this game, what did they see put on display when it comes to the University of Georgia? Well, I thought Javon Buller probably said it best. Javon, immediately after the game, was interviewed by uh, the folks from the AJC. And Javon talked about the desire of guys like himself and Kamari Lasseter and other Georgia players who had the option of not playing in the game, their decision to play in the game, their devotion to, as Georgia made a very big point of saying, finishing this game, finishing this season off on a very high note. This is the brand building that Georgia was able to do in front of more than 10 million people on Saturday. Javon Bullard to the AJC said it about as well as it could be said. This is Bullard on the field immediately after the game. I mean, that's why all the guys that are, you know what I'm saying, we get used to guys opting out all over the country. Notice that nobody opted out over here because we all, like, we finished what we started. And, like, this is, like I said, it's a testimony of how hard we work and really the love that we have and the love that we have for this team, man, and it, it goes way beyond football for us. How big was it to see so many young guys have success in this game, and how good is the group that's coming back next year? It's huge. Like I said, Georgia football isn't going nowhere. They're not going nowhere, man. Uh, those young guys are going to come in. They're going to step up. They're going to do great things. I'm so excited to see them play. And uh, it really just, you know what I'm saying, uh, like I said, Georgia ain't going nowhere. I love Javon Bullard. I really do. As a Georgia fan, uh, he means a lot to me. I think he means a lot to all of you there as well. Uh, I think when you think about special players who've come through Georgia during this era, There's no doubt about it. Bullard is clearly one of those. And it's statements like that that I think reinforce just how true this is. And so 
Let me kind of build to this in terms of casual fans stepping into view this game, what we saw on display from Florida State. Frankly, it ought to be considered an embarrassment. Uh, what we saw from Georgia, it is meaningful despite the fact that, you know, the game was marred by opt-outs. Uh, the ultimate takeaway from all of this is if I can only have your attention for like one sentence and if I can only have enough Internet bandwidth, which is probably true, true to reality than you realize, if I can only have enough Internet bandwidth to give you one message today, you know, this is the thing that I think matters about the Orange Bowl. Ultimately, this game proves there's just a difference. There's a difference between the best teams in the SEC and the best teams of other leagues. The College Football Playoff Selection Committee told you that at the beginning of this process when they excluded Florida State from the playoff. And as much whining and consternation that's gone on about that, we're reminded once again that there's just a difference. Everybody knows it, but nobody really wants to say it because college football really, really wants this to be a national sport. And college football wants as many fans as possible of the various what used to be Power Five conferences. Now we're down to Power Four uh, or whatever, but we're we're losing our sort of power five, you know, conferences, but but it's still the idea of as many different conferences believing they play the sport at the highest level is obviously the most financially beneficial thing for the sport. But a lot of that is built on and based on a lie that pretty clearly not every league plays the same level as the others. And the very best of the ACC and the very best of the SEC are just really, really different. And this game proves it. Both Georgia and Florida State were both playing in a meaningless bowl game. But the game just means more to Georgia because it just means more in the SEC. And this is the thing that has got to be top of mind. And, and Georgia's got to do everything in its power. And the rest of the sort of the top SEC type teams have got to do everything in their power to more forcefully make this argument in the future that you see there are just differences. There are different ways to approach all of this. And Florida State thinks it's sort of fully committed to football. And Florida State thinks it's playing the sport the highest level because it used to sort of back in the 90s, and it did, you know, 10 years or so ago when it won the national championship. But it's easy to dilute yourself into thinking you're something that you're not when all you're ever doing is comparing yourself to other ACC programs that simply don't even try to play the sport at the highest level. And deep down, Florida State knows that. That's why they're working as hard as they are to get away from the ACC. That's when they're trying to get out of that league, even at great financial penalty, because they know that that spending more time around those ACC's middling, you know, mediocre programs is only dragging down Florida State. And I think you see an example of that in a game like this, where both teams had the same set of circumstances, even though Florida State says, well, we were undefeated, whatever, whatever. Uh, both teams were facing the same set of circumstances, and Georgia just took a different approach to it than Florida State did. That's the takeaway. That's when the Georgia brand gets bigger, because Georgia just finds a way to see things like this. Even a game that a lot of people would say was meaningless, it is still meaningful to Georgia because college football as a sport is more meaningful to a program like Georgia and more meaningful to the very best programs in the SEC in a way that it's not in the ACC, no matter how hard other people try to work to convince you otherwise. That's the takeaway. There's just a difference between top teams in the SEC and top teams in other leagues, and it's the kind of difference that ought to matter in future discussions. And that's why, to make another point here for a moment, I have to admit, and I'm not going to criticize Kirby Smart for this, but... I thought that Kirby Smart, in a roundabout way, could have perhaps handled some of his business this month 
maybe just a little bit different. You know, Smart, at the end of the of his post-game press conference on Saturday, made a very forceful argument for the need for change in college football. Because one way or another, whether you're pro-George or anti-George or whatever else, we can all agree that a 60-point margin of victory in the Orange Bowl is a little bit of a mockery of competition. Like, you know, this is a little bit of a – I mean, everybody involved in the spectacle should be somewhat embarrassed. I think the ultimate blame for why the game is so lopsided rests with Florida State – but this is not good for the sport to have an Orange Bowl game decided by 60 points. We'd all kind of agree with that. Uh, you know, pro-Georgia or not, this was not a nice – this was not a banner day for college football to have the Orange Bowl decided by 60 points. It just wasn't. Um, and so after the – or I should say in the, in the late stage of the post-game press conference, you know, Kirby Smart got very forceful, you know, almost unsolicited, right? You know, kind of taking a question in a different direction to really point to the powers to be in college football to say – you know, something's got to be done about this. In fact, instead of me paraphrasing this, let me let you get a chance to hear Kirby Smart in his own words. And when it's over with, I'll tell you why I, I kind of could have used a little something different from Kirby. Here he is post game from Saturday. And maybe I'm wrong here, and maybe this will be a bad soundbite, but people need to see what happened tonight, and they need to fix this. It needs to be fixed. It's very unfortunate that they, who has a good football team and a good football program, are in the position they're in. And everybody can say it's their fault and it's still their own problem. All right? And everybody can say that we had our guys and they didn't have their guys. I can listen to all that. But college football has got to decide what they want. And I know things are changing. And I think things are going to change next year. And you know what? There's going to still be bowl games outside of those. People got to decide what they want and what they really want to get out of it. Because it's really unfortunate for those kids on that sideline they had to play in that game that didn't have their full arsenal. And it affected the game 100%. So that's a very forceful argument from Kirby Smart. It's a very impassioned plea about making college football look and feel different moving forward. And for a lot of people, that sounds like it makes a lot of sense. In fact, for the majority of Georgia fans, I believe, that sounds like it makes a lot of sense. Kirby Smart is a caretaker of the sport, and he's going to be an advocate for the sport when he possibly can. Even on the heels of a Georgia victory, that's what he's choosing to do there. That obviously makes a lot of sense. But let me tell you, as a Georgia partisan, where I think that Kirby perhaps to a certain degree this month has somewhat missed the mark. Now, I'm not obviously going to criticize Kirby Smart because uh, Georgia fans, including myself, we all you know love and respect Kirby Smart for the great success that he's had. But but even with that said, hear me out on this just for a moment. When Georgia lost to Alabama in the SEC championship, and admittedly Georgia you know, lost that game. Alabama's a very good program, hard to beat. And in this particular matchup in December, Georgia wasn't able to get that done. But what we said, we meaning the show, what we said was even on the heels of this victory by three points after 29 straight wins, after two straight national championships, that Georgia was still one of the four best teams in America. Because, as I mentioned a moment ago, there is a difference between the SEC and the other leagues. No matter how much the powers that be in this sport work to convince you otherwise, that everybody's just sort of playing the same schedule and everybody's doing the same stuff and undefeated in one league is as valuable as being undefeated in the SEC. That's a bunch of hogwash. It's simply not true. It is a false narrative. And that Georgia in the SEC battling head to head against Alabama, coming up a little bit short, but having won 29 straight games prior to that, having won two straight national championships prior to that, was still one of the four best teams in America. And there was a strong argument for Georgia's inclusion in the college football playoff in comparison to anybody cheating Michigan. 
you know, Washington from the now dissolved Pac-12, Texas, uh, certainly Florida State, whatever else. There was an argument for Georgia in comparison to anybody to make the college football playoff. Now, my issue is, and this is where I think that Kirby Smart's got to consider his role in being the leader of the Georgia program moving forward, not just being a leader for change in college football, but specifically the job that he's paid to do is be the leader for Georgia football. And what I kind of need from Kirby Smart is, to make the argument more forcefully next time for Georgia's inclusion in the college football playoff, as opposed to the argument he made on Saturday night, so forceful for change in college football. Clearly, Kirby Smart is capable of making an impassioned plea after a game. I would like to have heard that same passion after the Alabama game. I know we came up short, but we're still one of the four best. And I'm sort of led to believe, based on people who know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody, that Smart didn't really want to do that. He thought that was kind of conduct unbecoming. And many of you kind of agree because a lot of you didn't want to make that argument very strongly either at the time. But here's what we got to understand. No matter where college football is going when it comes to like the bowl game opt outs and the things like that, no matter where this sport's going for the future, there is going to be more arguing in place moving forward. There just is. I think the days and age of an undefeated, obvious national champion are probably about over. The one thing that everybody seems to say is, is that with each passing year, college football starts to look a little bit more like some version of the NFL. Well, if that's true, and we believe to a certain degree that it is, keep in mind what the NFL almost never has. There's been one undefeated uh, Super Bowl winner in the Super Bowl era, the Miami Dolphins back in 1972. The the New England Patriots, you know, uh, 15 years or so, came close to that, lost in the Super Bowl. Uh, NFL doesn't have undefeated teams. And as college football starts to look more like the NFL, the college football is not going to have any more undefeated teams ever, either. Have you seen the schedule that Georgia's playing next year? Have you seen the schedule that Michigan is playing next year? Most major programs in the Big Ten or the SEC, almost all of them, especially the very best teams, are going to be playing schedules that are just tougher in future years than they've been in the past. Here's what that means. There's not going to be obvious undefeated champions where there's no debate about who should be included in the playoffs. There is going to be some level of debate that takes place here moving forward. And what last, or should say Saturday night, what Saturday night should set us up for is the recognized difference that the best in the SEC has compared to the so-called best in other conferences. And Kirby Smart, I think moving forward, needs to understand the moment that we're in. He needs to know what time it is. And the time for arguing on behalf of Georgia as strongly as he argued on behalf of college football, that's the time that's arrived here right now. That Listen, we can figure out as a sport what we're going to do with transfer portals and bowl game opt-outs and things like that. But simultaneous to that, there's also an argument being made and taking place about who's winning the actual championships and the games that are taking place in front of us right now. And the argument's so intense that Florida State's willing to sue everybody. Uh, you know, Michigan's willing to allegedly, you know, cheat to any degree possible to, to give themselves an advantage. That's how how full contact other folks in this sport are playing right now. And Georgia's got to be ready for that same thing there as well. It was hard to watch this game on Saturday, to be frank, for me, uh, just a little bit. Because when you see Georgia winning this game by 60, I don't care who was lining up and playing for Florida State. When you see Georgia winning this game by 60 points, it was such a strong reminder in my mind that Georgia really is truly one of the four best teams in America. Would it have beaten Alabama in a rematch? I honestly don't know. But would it have beaten every other non-SEC team in the country? Of course it would. 
It, it blew up Michigan a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, scoring nine straight touchdowns against Florida State is not that different than scoring uh, seven straight touchdowns against Oregon the way that Georgia did to begin the 2022 season. Uh, Georgia won the national championship game by 58 points last year. One thing we know about Georgia right now is it has put a chasm's worth of difference between itself and every other non-Alabama team in America. And that ought to matter. And it should have mattered for Georgia this year. They should have been in the college football playoff based on the way they played on Saturday night. And they should have argued it more forcefully at the time. That's the big takeaway from this game. Everybody, at least 10 million people, tuned in to watch this. They saw how good Georgia can be. And they saw how little the very best in the ACC sometimes choose to care. That's a, that, that's a difference that makes a distinction. And uh, Georgia deserved inclusion in the college football playoff. And in the future, Georgia, Kirby Smart, and everybody else around this program has got to be ready to argue and make the case for the dogs because that is what the future of college football is going to look like. A lot more arguing on the way. And that is uh, Dog Nation Daily, represented by today by Palo Window and Door of Georgia. Uh, my name is Brandon Adams. Happy to have you with us. Obviously, the show, a little bit of a look and a feel that's a little bit different than, than sometimes we're able to provide. And, you know, listen, we're just going to – Work through this and sort of figure out uh, where all of this is heading, uh, but we're going to keep a good thought as we do. Calendar rolling into 2024. And, of course, big thanks to our friends at Pella Window and Door of Georgia who make the show possible. Energy-efficient windows and doors, that is what Pella Window and Door of Georgia is all about. So this time of year when you got cold weather on the outside, a lot of times it seems like that's the case. You can say it's toasty and warm on the inside because those windows and doors from Pella are keeping that heat kind of nice and cozy inside the house the way you want it to be. So you've been hearing me talk about Pella windows and doors for a long time. Could be it's time for you to have a conversation with one of those Pella experts who can tell you even more about the product, what makes it special, and why it's something that you ought to uh, really uh, connect with. You want to take the very best possible care of your house and show the best possible love to what is, in all likelihood, the most uh, significant financial investment you have. Pella Window and Door of Georgia can help you out with all of that. So stop by and see them in their experience center there in Duluth or have one of their Pella experts come out and talk to you personally. You can do it uh, virtually uh, if you like to there as well. It's a no pressure consultation. They're not kind of pushing anything on you. They simply want to educate you of, you know, if, if you're tired of feeling that sort of drafting inside your house or if you feel like your energy bills are too high because you've got energy escaping out of the house or if you just want your home to look better on the outside. Uh, you want to be a good neighbor and have great curb appeal, or if you're thinking about the future, possible resale value, you know, any kind of investment oftentimes to the exterior home that makes it look better when they folks drive up and see it for the very first time. That's the kind of thing that can, in some cases, really impact positively your resale value. And so another reason to uh, think about pellet window and door of Georgia for all of that. Also, as we begin the new year, great saving opportunities there as well. Between now and January 31st, you can get 10% off Pella projects and 0% APR for 36 months. So stop by and see them, Experience Center in Duluth, or uh, find them online, PellaofGA.com slash DogNation. That's PellaofGA.com slash DogNation. Or you can give them a call, 678-638-1429. That's 678-638-1429. Pella Window and Door of Georgia is viewed to be the best. I believe we've got uh, John Stinchcomb. Uh, sounds like he's ready to join us here right now. So we'll kind of roll into that and kind of do a version of Around the Doghouse with him here today, but also just kind of roll into this regular Georgia football conversation. Uh, and as I think I think I hear John uh, getting ready to go here. Yeah, so we'll go ahead and bring on John Stinchcomb here right now. John, Happy New Year to you. We appreciate you being a part of this discussion here today. Obviously, there's a lot of happiness about the fact that 
Georgia, you know, won the Orange Bowl by 60 points. It's certainly a weird game, probably not college ball's finest moment to have a storied bowl game like this decided by such a lopsided margin. I blame Florida State for that more than I blame anything else. And, you know, I think for me, the I guess the sort of saltiness that I'm sort of left with is it is an obvious proof, I think anyway, that Georgia is one of the four best teams in America. And the argument for inclusion for Georgia in the college football playoff I think could have and should have been more forcefully made back to begin the month. To me, the real travesty of all of this is a team like Georgia that after winning 29 straight, lost one game by three points, dropped from number one to number six. Everybody sort of high five because they realized they didn't have to worry about Georgia in the playoff and everybody sort of moved on after that. It's up for Georgia, I believe, to make its own case for stuff like this. And the Orange Bowl blowout to me shows you uh, just how much of a case that Georgia should have made. Uh, What do you think? Uh, I guess, what is your ultimate reaction to Georgia winning on Saturday afternoon to the uh, margin that it did? Well, Happy New Year to you and all of Dog Nation to to begin with. But so much to celebrate, obviously, huge win for Georgia. What what stands out to me in this is there was no right decisions to be made. The right decision should have been made by the three conference chairs a couple years back when Jim, Jim Phillips, representing the ACC, and two other commissioners decide that it's not in our best interest to start the expanded college football playoffs this year. So, you know, there were six teams that on paper had a, um, a, a, a case to be made for making that final four. Obviously George is one of the best four teams in the country. You can't use the, we're looking for the four best as to the yeah. reason why you eliminate Florida state. And then, switch reasons uh, as to why Georgia didn't make the top four, because obviously based on the entire body of work, uh, they are one of the best four teams in the country, if not the best on, on any given Saturday. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't blame, I, I listened to your, uh, you kind of explain that, you know, Kirby had an opportunity to speak more. Maybe so, but to me, the the people I hold accountable is the three commissioners that voted against it a couple years back. No, I think that's a really fair point. And when you look at the strong performance from George on the field, I mean, I think a really cool takeaway from that is, is that I don't know that I expected Georgia to be as locked in as it was, no matter how much it was saying all the right things prior to this. And I think you and I have even talked about this in the past, that Georgia was clearly saying the right things, and Georgia clearly wasn't having – the opt-outs leading into this game, the way that Florida State was, or the way that maybe other teams would have, you know, facing similar situations. So there was clearly a, um, I, I guess, a, a vibe being put forth from Georgia that sort of felt positive. But even with that understood, I don't know that I expected Georgia to be this locked in. And I do think there is a positive takeaway from this. From a brand-building standpoint, it makes Georgia look pretty cool to have such a big audience tune in to see Georgia winning a game by by, by such a blowout fashion. But it also just sort of shows that, you know, a phrase that I use a lot, how you do anything is how you do everything. And Georgia approached this game the same way that it approaches seemingly any other, at least, you know, you know, game of note for sure. And I just think, John, the, the most positive takeaway, I believe, for Georgia fans moving into a new year is, is that Georgia may have lost a game and its losing its winning streak may have been, you know, ended. But as Georgia moves into 2024, the overall brand of UGA and the idea of Georgia as a national championship contender in any season, that brand is still just as solid and still just as true as it ever was. To me, that's what getting back on the horse uh, against Florida State, I, I think, probably proves more than anything else. 
Yeah, this was a testament to great leadership. And I think it was lessons learned. You look back at the Sugar Bowl game a few years back against Texas, and we were still uh, feeling the ill effects of missing out on the college football playoffs then. And it reflected itself on the field, similar to what we've witnessed for the past month of what's come out of Tallahassee. They're still worried about what happened and the injustices against them rather than focusing on the game ahead. And it really showed on both sides. I, I To me, uh, it made me even more confident in our leadership that mm-hmm. Coach Smart and his staff were able to get the guys in that locker room focused on the task at hand. If you look at the numbers, we had almost exactly the number of same players that weren't available to us for one reason or another that Florida State had. So the difference comes down to, one, the depth, but two, and, and probably more importantly, the focus of the players that were available and how they approached the game from the staff to the team from well before kickoff, it was pretty apparent that Georgia was about their business. The guys that were on this trip, this game was important to them. They take pride in their work. If we're going to take the field, then we're going to do so in a way that uh, we can be proud of. And Florida state did not do that. They didn't approach this game with the, the respect that it demands when you face a, a high-quality opponent to say, we represent this university, we re- represent our school, we represent our team, and we represent ourselves every time we take the field. And when you take that half-heartedly, it, it certainly did reflect on their performance. I thought the fact that Kendall Milton had two touchdowns kind of early in the game, enough to kind of make him more than 100 yards rushing, made him MVP of the game, I thought that was meaningful because we know what Kendall's been through. He's stuck with Georgia, stuck by Georgia, working hard to be as healthy as he could be to kind of show people what he's capable of being when he's fully healthy. And Kendall Milton, to me, has a little bit of a flash to his game that makes him always a fan favorite because he's kind of a highlight waiting to happen. He has a very fun running style, I think. And he's kind of always been, you know, popular with UGA fans, even though sometimes we were kind of waiting to see the best of Kendall on the field because He's dealt with his you know, share of injuries, things like that. But you know, Kirby Smart's always been adamant that no one was working harder than Kendall to kind of be back out there and be at full strength and fully ready to go for Georgia. And to kind of conclude his Georgia career, which we believe it's going to be, to kind of conclude his Georgia career, Kendall goes on a very high note. I was very proud for him on Saturday. I enjoyed watching him play. Uh, I think he has a chance to be a very good NFL running back and kind of further the legacy of Georgia as uh, so-called RBU running back university. I thought it was very meaningful to see Kendall be named MVP on Saturday night. How fun was that for you? Yeah, he's a great representative of the University of Georgia. And throughout his career, I felt for him because very rarely was he at 100%. He played his very best football these last five games of his, what potentially could be his last year at Georgia. And that's always great to see. But Uh, For Kendall, to me, it was a a case of never really having the opportunity, mainly because of injuries, that his talent could predicate. And uh, to see him kind of get the recognition as the MVP of the bowl and wrap up a career uh, that he should be proud of, uh, aside from getting sidetracked because of injuries, he has been a great representative of the University of Georgia. Uh, His commitment to bringing it in practice has been Uh, well noted throughout his career and has been a great representative for our university. 
if the final moment uh, in a Georgia uniform for Aladdin McConkey was the play where he's about to throw it, decides to tuck it and run, gets the touchdown. If that's the end for Ladd in a Georgia uniform, I fear that it might be. But if that's the end for Ladd in a Georgia uniform, what a way to go out. And that's another one of those moments that kind of sticks out to me as one of the things that I don't care who Georgia was lining up and playing. <laughs> the Orange Bowl was incredibly entertaining for a lot of UGA fans. And the McConkey play is an example of that. Isn't it fun to watch just guys that have that innate ability to create? And, you know, as as we constantly comment about the coordinators and we need to design better plays, when you've got guys like Ladd out there, it could be the wrong play and they make you right. And he's done it so consistently. And and that was a uh, case in point for the amount of playmaking ability that he possesses and has shown throughout his entire career at Georgia. Got a couple of other issues I want to get to into with you. So let me just ask you a kind of a broad-based question before we move on. Anything else in the Orange Bowl really stick out to you in terms of you know what you saw? It was, I think, a lot of fun. And you know, we can obviously kind of get it more into what college ball needs to do in response to this, and we'll get into that more in a moment. But as far as the actual Georgia performance goes, is there anything else from the game, John, that stands out to you? Yeah, well, two things stood out just in general. One, the uh, faith that I now have in our, or continue to have in our staff to, to prepare and put our team in a position to succeed consistently. Uh, we've, we've learned from past mistakes, I feel, just with uh, the amount of preparation, the ability to get this team focused on a game that so many others say no longer matters because you're outside of college football playoffs. It mattered to them. It mattered to the program. I think that the positive energy that you take, and this is the second point for the players that will be returning and the amount of opportunities that they had um, on Saturday to show that they're ready and will be the next uh, wave to represent the the University of Georgia when we take the field. What a great opportunity for them for, for a number yeah. of plays in that second half. We look at an offensive line group, and they were not alone, of guys that will most likely uh, be the next to carry the torch. And and there that, that was across the board. So many different position groups where guys had those opportunities, even with a wave of, of the number one recruiting class coming in and some transfers, it was a great opportunity for them to say, hey, I'm next in line here, and mm-hmm. it's going to be a battle for you young bucks to, to kind of don't don't expect to just walk right in because we've got some really talented players that have been in-house cultivating talent. So along those lines, let's kind of move on to kind of some of the stuff that's next for Georgia. And there's already been kind of a flood of news coming out in the last 24 hours, sort of expected that it might be. And one thing to keep in mind here is today's January 1st. The transfer portal still is open until January 4th. So yesterday, and we'll show you this on the screen, C.J. Smith, the Georgia wide receiver, he goes into the transfer portal, that being reported by on three. Uh, Jared Zirkle, the Georgia kicker, who had kind of tried his hand in the portal to see if anything was available for him. Well, apparently there is. He's on his way to Texas A&M. Daniel Harris, good news for Georgia, that he had kind of talked about going to the portal, declared that he was going to, but never officially took that next step and played a lot on Saturday. Seems like he's a big part of the future here for UGA. So, John, whether it be, you know, C.J. Smith going in, Zirkle moving on. Uh, Daniel Harris changing his mind. We are not done with portal news as of yet. Now, we think it's probably kind of sort of whittling down. Jeff Sandell had a good story with Mikhail Williams, where Williams kind of put to bed any kind of rumor that he might go into the portal after a little bit of chatter about that. But we got a couple of more days, if you're a Georgia fan, of sort of bracing for this portal news one way or another. And as we kind of go through the rest of this, that's still out there, right? Yeah, and, and I would say this, for where Georgia's at, compared to every other team in the country, the portal is is 
can be used as a good thing for us um, rather than we're going to lose our top talent. You look at other teams and other programs, it makes me think of Georgia Tech a couple years ago with Jameer Gibbs, and they lose him. You lose your best player on the roster to another team. That's not the situation Georgia's in. You look at these transfers, and the majority of them are players that you know have had some opportunity here and, and haven't really – matriculated or shifted themselves out to the top. And so we need those roster spots. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. If we're going to have the best recruiting class and we sign more than 25 guys, there's almost 30 guys in this class incoming, including some transfers that were some of the best on their their rosters with Etienne and, and obviously Humphrey. So there's some guys that are coming in that are going to compete. Well, if, if that improves our roster, that also means we have to do a little trimming at the bottom end of that roster for guys that maybe have had some time on campus but don't see those opportunities. It This is, like it or not, with the transfer portal the way it is, this is the way it should be for a program like Georgia where guys can say, maybe I can go to another program, whether it be a Syracuse, a Kentucky, or a Texas A&M, and there's better opportunity for me there, um, having spent a couple years here and kind of seeing the writing on the wall. So I think for Georgia fans, you look at it and go, there are some guys we don't want to lose. Obviously, I think a guy like Daniel Harris is someone that the University of Georgia and the staff is going, whoa, you know, this is this is a player that we have a vision for that next year is is going to be potentially a cornerstone for the secondary, yeah. and we need to hold on to them. For some of these other players, that's not the case. Yeah, I want to talk to you more about the Georgia secondary in a moment because I think that's about to get really interesting very fast. We'll do that. Let me also talk about Amarius Mims, who has na- announced his intention to move on the NFL draft. Not a surprise. He didn't join the team in Miami, uh, did not play. Obviously, he's battled injury. And, uh, you know, I think Amarius Mims has a chance to, to truly be. I mean, I think he's projected to be, obviously, a first round pick. When you think about a guy that, did not start a ton at Georgia because of the fact that he had to wait his turn there for a minute, also dealt with a little bit of injury. But in the small number of starts he has had at UGA to prove his valuables value as a first-round pick, John, I think that really speaks to Georgia's ability to develop its players. First of all, that's a really good thing. And, man, when you do the what might have been about this 2023 season for Georgia, you know, Mims not leaving – the SEC championship. How does that make that game different? Uh, you know, the, the the games that that Mims obviously missed for Georgia this year. Georgia's clearly a much better team when Amarius Mims was in. He's very deserving of being a first-round pick. He's going to be. Good for him. Good for Georgia for developing him. But, my gosh, when you think about, you know, just a couple of things being perhaps a little bit different for Georgia this year, more of Amarius Mims in the SEC championship game is certainly one of those things that Georgia fans will have to kind of sort of just sort of live with here for a little bit because that is a very, very good player. Uh, and he's uh, going to move on to the NFL, and uh, Georgia fans will have to replace him for next season. Yeah, and and for Mims, there's two perspectives here. One, his ceiling is through the roof. I mean, he even coming in, you look at him and you say – God only built so many people <laughs> in, in this mold and Amarius Mims' size and his ability to move at that size is exceptional. As a Georgia fan, we got to see that very little. I mean, o- only a handful of options. And this year, whether it was affected by injury, which it was at times, or for the fact that there was uh, and protection of his draft value, because there's plenty that have said, 
you're going to be a first-round pick despite the fact that you've only started a handful of games, probably the least uh, of any potential first-round pick in quite some time, um, that there there were outside voices that kind of contributed to his decision-making as to when and if he was returning to the field. Now, you know, I, I'm not I'm not questioning his manhood or his toughness, but that's a very realistic uh perspective of how players are approaching the game there are very few guys that that look at it now and say hey i'm willing to put myself on the line which makes the others stand out it it, it made it quite the anomaly when only a handful of weeks less than the usual projected time for post tightrope surgery that brock bowers is back on the field now you know maybe that's a case where he came back a little early if he wasn't able to play these last two games post uh that that quick return but there's there's more at play than just am i healthy enough to go these days and and we've seen it with other players where if you've got that high draft potential that that becomes part of the equation and i i certainly feel like that was the case for amirius a lot of news coming out of the Georgia secondary. Kamari Lassiter has announced that he's moving on to the NFL draft. No surprise there. It seems like he's destined to be a first-round pick. Uh, then you start thinking about Javon Buller, who's also moving on to the NFL draft. That's a guy who's had a great Georgia career and I think has a chance to be a very good NFL safety. I'm, I guess, less certain about what round he might be drafted in, but I think that he can certainly be a big part of the NFL in the future. And then Tyke Smith, who's been at Georgia now for a while and kind of had to wait his turn, battled some injury, and probably had to kind of fight for a little bit of a playoff spot. Not playoff spot, but a, I got playoff spots in the brain right now. A playing spot is what I mean to say. Uh, you know, eventually he settled into a really nice role for this Georgia team here this year, and he is also moving on there as well. So, John, let me deal with a couple of things for you on this. And I guess let me mention Bullard by name here because – when we make a list of the guys who've been really special for Georgia over the course of this kind of national championship era, 21, 22, and, you know, here kind of, you know, seeing that streak come to an end here in 2023, Javon Bullard's one of my favorites. Javon Bullard last year in the biggest games for Georgia was amazing. The individual moment from this run that I probably, I don't know why I think about this so frequently. I do. I even go back and watch the uh, video replay of it a lot. Like the blitz sack he had against uh, Tennessee, you know, second half, I think it was fourth quarter uh, of that game back in 2022. Crowd goes wild. You know, Bullard kind of making, starting to make a name for himself as a very special Georgia player at that time. Um, Javon Bullard's one of my favorites. And I, I, I know there's a long list of guys that are going to need to be special reverence in terms of the guys who played at Georgia during this period of time. But Bullard's got to have a big spot on that list, I believe. Yeah, and it's because of the way they approach the game. It For Javon Bullard, I, again, I'm like you. I love watching him play. I love like watching Lad McConkey play. The similarities there is they come in not quite as highly touted because maybe they're not the fastest on the team. Maybe they don't fit that mold of – you know, freakishly big, or if if you're going to put together the freaks of the SEC, they're not making that list. But you put them on a football field, and those guys play with a desire that's unmatched. And he would stick his nose in every pile that you could possibly imagine. There was not a situation that he would shy away from. He was aggressive and fun to watch. And there is always going to be a place for guys that just are football players. Javon Bullard is one of them. It was fun to watch. And it's going to be a hole. But yeah, you know, that's why it's so important to continue to bring in these top recruits. And 
not only this year, but last year as well. There's some guys that are kind of chomping at the bit, waiting for those opportunities. And that's where Georgia football lives these years is there is a high probability that there are a number in the teens of guys that are going to be drafted to the NFL or at least go to the NFL. And that's an annual basis, which will provide opportunities for other great players to step in. When Javon Bullard first took the field, nobody was like, yeah. hey, sweet, we got we got him coming to replace some of our some of our studs that we had in the past, guys that we loved. And he, he has endeared himself with the way he approached the game and the way he played it and the number of big time plays that uh, will be an opportunity for the next guy to do the same. But the point you're making is one that I think is so important, which is that Okay, so Kamari Laster has been so good that he makes it look easy, and that's always a bad thing because when he steps away, you realize, oh, boy, playing lockdown corner, not as easy as Kamari Laster made it look, and Bullard was very good. Tyke Smith played a very important role. What's about to happen for the Georgia secondary I think is going to be fascinating, and I am certainly not here to suggest, oh, well, the next crop is going to be just as good as this crop because transitions like that are never error-free. There's always a little bit of growing pain around some of that kind of stuff. But it does create an opportunity for K.J. Bolden, who I'm really excited about. Janelle Aguero, who's been here for a year, that could be one of the most important names for Georgia in 2024 in terms of I sort of see him maybe slotting in where Tyke Smith was here this year. That could be a really big deal for him. B.A., go ahead. Post-G-Day and training camp, Aguero was one of the guys that got mentioned the most. So, there is real reason for the hype surrounding his name. Sorry to cut you off, but just no. tagging in on that. I mean, yeah. there, there's a lot of guys, and I'm sure you're about to go through a list, including the the number one corner in the signing class. So sorry to yeah, steal no, your thunder, right. but one to echo that. You're absolutely right. And Ellis Robbins would be the next name to mention there of, you know, probably a little thin right now, but man, he's long body. And everybody says that, that he is the real deal. And then he kind of lives up to what you expect a guy rated that high to be that, that, these are big shoes to fill, but this conversation that's about to occur this year and spring practice will be here before you know it. This conversation on the Georgia secondary, I believe is going to be a lot of fun because there are a lot of, you know, young guys waiting the wings and they could have their chance to be really very impressive. Yeah. Across the board and, and secondary is one of those positions where you have to have talent back there. And, and Tyke was one who, when he first transferred to Georgia, uh, he had to wait. I mean, there was a couple years where we're going, did we get a, a freshman All-American, a freshman All-Conference player in the transfer portal? What happened to Tyke Smith? And he had to kind of matriculate through the system here at Georgia before he earned that opportunity and played, I think, one of the most underrated, undervalued positions on the field for this Georgia defense this year. Made a ton of plays and and continued to get better. I mean, by the end of the season was a guy that you kind of expected on the edge to to come in and, and make some of those stops, uh, either in, in those slant routes that everyone likes to throw in those third and short situations or those jet sweeps where he'd come up and, you know, bloody somebody's nose with the way he'd pop them. So, you know, it's a guy that – uh, Georgia continues to to find talent across the board, whether it's in-house development by their second or third year or transfer portal, which has been very limited. Tyke is kind of the exception there, but primarily through uh, recruiting and signing some of the very best talent. And I think the retention of Daniel Harris uh, mm-hmm. shows and what we saw, you know, it, he gets beat for the the longest play that Florida State had. Was it because of bad co- coverage? No, he was right there on top of the yeah. guy. It was 
a great throw to a, to a receiver who made a play. Um, but there's a lot of excitement there, and, and rightfully so. There are some young pieces to this Georgia secondary that, you know, do you, do you ever feel good about losing first-round talent at a cornerback position? No, absolutely not. But what makes you feel better is when you've got guys in-house or, or coming in-house that, uh, that have the chops to kind of play at that same level, maybe not day one, but certainly grow into that space. I want to be respectful of your time. I've taken a lot of it already here on New Year's Day. You're kind enough to join us. Let me squeeze in one more topic, though, if you don't mind. Uh, you kind of addressed this right at the beginning of our conversation about uh, what Kirby Smart said. Essentially, like what we all say, you know, you're standing around like the breakfast table or with your friends, politics comes up. Somebody says, you know, somebody ought to do something about that, right? Like we've kind of sort of reached that phase of the college football discussion where people see things going on and there's this thought of, somebody ought to do something about that. And Kirby Smart sort of had his moment like that there on Saturday saying, hey, we got to fix this. Well, John, let me ask you here to kind of close this out. I realize this is a bigger conversation than the time we have you know, allotted here, but what is the this that needs to be fixed? And what is the thing that needs to happen to fix it? Everybody agrees that something's not quite right with college football right now, but can we get more specific about what really needs to happen and who has the power to do the thing that needs to be done? Yeah, there's a couple pieces. I mean, the system isn't broken, but there's broken pieces within the system. Obviously, uh, with the NIL and transfer portal, the way that those have been married, there is obviously, I mean, that has to be cleaned up. The fact that third parties have equal, if not more, influence on the decisions of where a player plays, that's a problem. If you look at the conference alignments and the, the separation and the parity that exists, that's a problem. You look at the calendar. You look at the fact that Transfer Portal, when it's opened, we're still calling these individuals student athletes. So the fact mm-hmm. that school is still a, a part of that needs to be a part of the equation unless you separate that out. If you start looking at you know, whether these the players get paid, well, if players get paid through the university, they become employees. What does that do? with the relationship to Title IX and student-athlete status, I think that all that needs to be looked at. So who's who are the, the players involved that, that need to make those things happen? I think uh, you look at the antitrust cases, the, the, the federal litig- litigation that's outstanding, that needs to get ironed out. And there's probably, you know, it sounds kind of weird to say this, but Congress probably plays a role in straightening out some of the options and and direction of college football, which there are some difficult decisions that are going to need to be made. And a lot of people are not going to like it. Bulls aren't going to like it. There's some football programs that are not going to be that they aren't going to love it because they're going to be left out. I think there's going to be a, a an extension of the stratification that's already occurred between the SEC and the Big Ten and everyone else. I think the ACC schools, FSU specifically, this year is saying we are on the outside looking in to the first tier of football. And there are other programs that are trying to figure out and navigate these waters that are uncharted. We're in a new space across the board. It really is uh, fascinating stuff, John. And I, there's so much I could say, but we'll save it for future weeks because something tells me in 2024, we're not going to stop talking about anything like this anytime soon, whether we want to or not. John, please pass along thanks to your family for sharing some of your time 
here on New Year's Day, uh, you know, with us. And uh, obviously, we'll let you get back to you guys. Don't have the greens and the, uh, the the black eyed peas the way that you know. I know you're a sort of dyed in the wool Southern the way that I am. My grandmother uh, grew up serving uh, black eyed peas and I guess it's collard greens collard on uh, New greens. Year's. Yeah, on New Year's Day. So I'm sure that, that you will keep that tradition going the way that a good Southern family would. Yeah, absolutely. It's the best way to uh, start off the new year. And uh, happy holidays. Happy New Year to you, BA, and to all of Dog Nation. John, we'll talk to you soon, okay? Sounds good. Go dogs. Go dogs, indeed. Strong stuff there from John Stenchcomb, who, listen, we got to have voices like that speaking on issues like what is coming for college ball in the future, people who care about the sport, we got to have, you know, good stakeholders willing to sort of step up and speak on behalf of the sport. I want to talk more about that here in a moment uh, as we transition to cruise around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. And by the way, do y'all do that? Because I mean, I'm telling you right now, in my family, it was a big deal. We had collard greens and black eyed peas every New Year's Day. And the collard greens were supposed to be to give you money. And the black eyed peas were supposed to be like to give you a good luck, I think, for the new year which I'm sure makes it sound incredibly superstitious. But I think a lot of people in the South did that. Uh, that was a pretty big thing there for a while. I don't know that we still do that anymore, but that was a pretty big deal there for a while. The collard greens and the black eyed peas there on uh, New Year's Day. But nonetheless, we'll transition here to cruise around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. Spent a lot of time in Fort Lauderdale this past week, sometime in Miami. Technically, I actually don't know that I ever got into like true Miami proper. We were in Fort Lauderdale, then we were in Miami Gardens. I don't think I ever actually got into like the actual Miami part of Miami. But nonetheless, when I was uh, in the airport yesterday, uh, kind of looking out and actually even at the hotel, too, when you kind of when you're elevated enough to sort of look out across the uh, landscape there, I saw right across the Port Everglades, which is right there in Fort Lauderdale. So one of those gorgeous Royal Caribbean cruise ships right there in Port. I'm actually not sure what ship that it was, but saw it right there in Port Everglades. It's a reminder to me of how much fun 2024 is going to be when it comes to Royal Caribbean. So many brand new things on the way here. You've heard me talk about them all. The debut of Icon of the Seas, largest cruise ship ever constructed. I'm going to have a chance to sail on that coming up in a few weeks. i got to tell you, I'm pretty ready for a vacation. So I'm very, very excited for all of that, and especially this uh, Royal Caribbean cruise vacation on board Icon of the Seas. The debut of Utopia of the Seas, that comes up in July. That's going to be sailing out of Port Canaveral. It's going to be three and four night sailings. On the brand new Oasis class cruise ship. Boy, that's going to be a lot of fun. New things coming for Perfect Day Coco K there as well. My New Year's resolution is to spend more time on a Royal Caribbean cruise ship. And you can do the same thing there as well. Jessica Slater can help you out with it. You can give her a call 770-718-9147. That's 770-718-9147. Or you can email her jslater at dreamvacations.com. Here's the deal. Royal Caribbean wants you to have the best Royal Caribbean cruise vacation possible. They believe that a great travel agent is the best way for you to do that. And working with Jessica doesn't cost you anything. She's a Royal Caribbean expert. She knows the entire uh, array of options that Royal Caribbean provides. And she, she can help you select the best one for you. Royal Caribbean will pay her for doing that. It doesn't cost you anything. So book your Royal Caribbean cruise vacation with Jessica. And I haven't seen Jessica in a while. I'm sure we'll be seeing each other some here in 2024 as we get ready to do some sailings, including the Dog Nation cruise coming, coming up in April. So that is going to be a great, great times. By the way, if you want more information for the Dog Nation cruise, and y'all, we are in the year of the cruise. It's 2024 now, so when I say April of 2024, now I can just say April. It's coming up, royaldogs.com, for more on that. All right, so let's cruise around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. Let's sort of think about the year that's about to be for college football. And we're all getting ready for big change here. Divisions in the SEC, they're gone. 
uh, Texas and Oklahoma, they're about to be in this league. 12-team playoff, we're about to be in it. And, y'all, I don't think that we have fully appreciated just how different the 12-team playoff era is going to be and just how different the conversation is going to be. I, I think that you know we're still so entrenched in the year that has been that we haven't probably wrapped our mind around how new all of this is going to feel. Uh, you know what the quarterfinal sites are going to be, what the semifinal sites are going to be, who gets the you know the 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 buy to that next round, and who has to play you know on those matchups going on the road, and uh, you know who gets a chance to host a playoff game. All of that is new for the new year, which is why I said what I said a moment ago about you know Kirby Smart, I believe, is going to have to get more comfortable being more forceful in arguing on George's behalf because. There's not going to be less arguing because of a 12-team playoff. There's going to be more arguing because there's going to be more things to argue about. You know, where do you play? Who do you play? When do you play the game? All of that kind of stuff is going to be up for grabs in the sort of the new argument that's going to take place. And I do think that George is going to be ready for that. And I don't care if it looks tacky. You have got to pound your fist on the table and make the case, as we said to begin our show today, that there's a difference between Georgia and these other non-SEC teams, the Florida States, the Michigans, the Oregons, all these teams that Georgia spends all this time laying waste to, that has got to matter in future arguments. And Georgia's got to be ready to make that argument as distasteful as it sort of looks. And, you know, I, I get the idea of what some Georgia fans are going to say. Well, I want to beat Alabama on the field. I don't want to argue about whatever else. Listen, I get that. But here's the thing you got to understand, too, is that Alabama is not squeamish about making these arguments. Georgia has had one national championship that came uh, in which they were put in the playoff without winning the SEC. Alabama's got two in the Nick Saban era alone. Alabama does not uh, back down from arguing on its behalf, no matter what the facts are in the case. And for the Georgia fans who may want to say, well, Alabama already beat us, so therefore we don't deserve to be national champions. Do you hear any Alabama? I'm, I'm asking this question like legitimately. Do you hear any Alabama fan or Nick Saban himself saying that about another team that's in the playoff, Texas? In other words, if Georgia doesn't deserve a rematch with, with uh, Alabama, then Alabama doesn't deserve a rematch with Texas. But Alabama fans are certainly aren't uh, 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 willing to concede that. Uh, they're willing to say that if, if we get there, if we win the rematch, then we're the real national champions, which is exactly what they should say because everybody ought to argue whatever is in their own best interest, which Alabama is never afraid of doing. Nick Saban himself in particular is never afraid of doing that. And the brand new era of college football that we're moving into, Georgia's got to be comfortable doing the very same thing. Because in the new era of expanded, of expanded playoffs and tougher schedules and probably multiple losses for everyone, we may see at least two losses for every national champion moving forward in the next decade. That may be what the new landscape of college football is going to look like. And in that world, arguing is going to matter more than ever. So roll up your sleeves and be ready for it. That's some of the change that's on the way. Now, one more kind of like parallel point to this here for a moment. When you look at what Kirby said on Saturday about, hey, somebody is going to do something about this. This is not good for college football. we got to figure all this out. There's obviously a lot of what Kirby said that does deserve to be taken seriously. And as I said to John, we all seem to agree, boy, change is needed. But I think that's where our agreement kind of breaks up a little bit or or where the clarity becomes a little bit less, you know, uh, easy to establish of 
what exactly is the problem and what exactly is the fix to the problem? Everybody sort of agrees that college football is in kind of a weird spot. There is a problem. But what exactly do you do about that problem? And specifically, what is the problem? This is where I think things get a little bit tricky. And all I can say is this. I really feel like as we move into this new year, this year of change that's on its way for college football, the one thing that somebody with some actual power somewhere has got to be comfortable doing. And over the course of the last couple of years, I'm talking about like administrative level people, you know, NCAA level people to the extent that's even still an organization that exists. The the most powerful figures in college athletics, the one thing they've sort of seemingly lost the will to do is argue for the right of college athletics to exist. The sort of amateur model that has been in place for, you know, more than a century Public favor has seemed to turn against that. You know, for all these court cases that have gone against the NCAA and against college athletics in recent years, I'm not a lawyer, but what I can tell you is the laws haven't changed in terms of why suddenly the NCAA can't win in court. The laws haven't changed. It's just the interpretation of these laws that has changed. And the interpretation of these laws have changed because public opinion has changed about the idea of college athletics. And we can get into why public opinion has changed and how it's shifted and what has influenced that shift. But in a world in which suddenly the public tide is seemingly turned against college athletics, those who lead college athletics have sort of lost their will to defend their livelihood because they're afraid of the criticism that comes their way from doing something that a lot of people in the public have sort of decided they don't like, the college athletics amateur model. And I believe of all the sort of discussion about, well, somebody's going to do something about this. I think the thing that needs to be done is somebody's got to develop the will or the, 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 the cleverness or something. Someone's got to develop the willingness to argue on behalf of the system. Because if no one argues on behalf of the system, the system's going to be totally trampled over. And the system's going to be totally destroyed. And there are plenty of people who will cheer that when it happens as a very, very good thing because they view it to be a sham and they think it's you know oppressive or whatever else. But when you look around, college athletics are still incredibly popular. These bowl games, for as bad as they are, are still incredibly popular. Other sports, basketball, women's basketball, baseball, softball, all the ratings for all of these sports in comparison to their previous track record, all very, very high right now, higher than they've ever been because people still really like college athletics. In the day and age in which other sports ratings are kind of going down compared to what they've been before. The college athletics ratings across all sports seem to still be going up. People still really like college athletics. Are we sure we want to just destroy that? Are we sure we just want to tinker with that so much? Because here's the thing that wise people sort of understand, that when you try to make a minor tweak to a complex system, you set in space a series of events that you don't have control of. Complex systems are difficult to manage. And when you try to make a minor tweak to a complex system, you set yourself up for unintended consequences. And I just wish that somebody smarter than me would be willing to make that argument. And perhaps in the new year, that is what we'll see. As far as today's action, it is New Year's Day, traditional day of big-time bowl games. We have some of that. A couple of SEC teams in action prior to the college ball playoff. We've got LSU against Wisconsin. We have got Tennessee against Iowa. Now, I started the show today by saying there is a difference between the very best of the SEC and the very best of other leagues. 
That does not mean, though, that every SEC team is always going to go out and dominate any team that it plays from some other league. That's not that's not what I mean when I say there's a difference. There is a difference between Georgia and the best of other leagues, but that doesn't mean the SEC is always set up for dominance no matter what. And I say all of that to say, I actually have a sneaking suspicion, and maybe I'll be proven wrong, I often am. I have a little bit of a sneaking suspicion that LSU and Tennessee could both be in a little bit of trouble today. Um, now, we have seen during this bowl season, one of these Big Ten defenses that were so vaunted and so uh, so heralded, oftentimes the success of that defense was only built on the back of playing against some pretty moorbound Big Ten offenses on a pretty regular basis. Maybe Iowa is the latest example of that. Statistically, this is a very good defense, but maybe that's only true because they've been playing against some very bad Big Ten offenses. But I'm going to be forced to assume here for a moment that the Iowa defense is at least good enough and the Iowa coaching staff is at least sharp enough. They can flummox Nico Imaleva for Tennessee, who's making his first start today for the Vols. I think Iowa defense is probably a pretty bad matchup for a quarterback like Nico making his first start. Now, I'm fascinated by seeing him because allegedly he was paid millions of dollars in IL and things like that. He's supposed to be the next big thing. Did not have much of a freshman season to make you think that, uh, but that's kind of, you know, what he's supposed to be here right now. So seeing him today against Iowa, I think it'd be interesting, but something tells me the Iowa defense may have a little something for Nico. We'll find out if that is the case. And the other game, LSU and Wisconsin, this is the one that's in, Tampa, I think. Yeah, the, the, the Tampa game used to be the Outback Bowl. Um, there's a little bit of a weird vibe around LSU right now, I believe. A lot of weird vibes during bowl season, I get that. But a little bit of a weird vibe around LSU. Jane Daniels obviously not playing here in this game. There's also some weird Brian Kelly rumors right now. I don't know if there's any truth to these. I don't have any reason to think there are true. But the thought that if Jim Harbaugh, who, by the way, has hired an agent who seems really, really intent on exploring his NFL options, that if Harbaugh were to go you know, to the NFL, that Brian Kelly would be a candidate for the Michigan job. Obviously, LSU is a better job than Michigan, I believe, uh, because of the national championships that LSU has won. But because of how many national championships LSU has, it's also a very tough job, too. If Brian Kelly kind of looks across that, much the same way he looks around Notre Dame and realized, oh, I can't win here. I, I can't win a national championship here. Let me go try my hand at LSU. If Kelly looks around and says, oh, boy, after a couple of years of being here at LSU, I realized just how tough this league really is, how challenging all of this really is. If that's the way that uh, that Kelly sort of sees this, maybe he would consider a, a Michigan opening if it were to come available. Either way, the LSU situation this year has been weird, uh, and I think it's weird going to the bowl game. I think Luke Fickle's a pretty good coach. I sort of like Wisconsin today against LSU. So I'm kind of taking a stand against both of the SEC teams in the early New Year's action. And then by now, it seems like we've sort of talked the uh, college ball playoff games to death, but I'll give you both of those here just for a moment. I think Texas is pretty good. I really do. I, I think that Texas is pretty good. Um, and I think as they get ready to move into the SEC, I think they come into this league feeling very much like an SEC team. Uh, really dynamic wide receiver play. I think Quinn Ewers has been good at quarterback. Obviously, there was the interesting photo that came out this week of Ewers sort of looking over his shoulder at Arch Manning with all the media around him. That was interesting to see. Arch is obviously a guy that has a bright future, but it seems like we may have to wait a little more for that to come uh, available. It seems like Quinn Ewers probably coming back uh, next uh, season for uh, Texas. But the other thing that makes the Longhorns feel much more like an SEC team is they're really good in the defensive line. I think that Texas probably has the best defensive line in the college ball playoff. 
Uh, I assume they will handle Washington easily. But y'all, I've also been wrong about Washington over and over this year. So uh, take this all with a grain of salt. I just don't quite know that I've got a, a proper handle on this Washington team. But uh, the best guess that I'm able to make is, is, that, is that Texas takes care of business fairly easily against Washington here tonight. We'll see if that is indeed the case. And when it comes to Alabama and Michigan, <laughs> there is no positive outcome here in this game. Either team winning seems pretty distasteful in my mind. But as square as it makes me sound, and as you know, perhaps naive as it makes me sound, the best available evidence I have in front of me leads me to believe that Michigan has greatly aided from its sign stealing. And the number one piece of proof I have from that is, is the work that Michigan was willing to do, the financial cost that Michigan was willing to make to keep it all going. Michigan seemed to believe they were getting something out of this. And the performance for Michigan, especially J.J. McCarthy, after all of this has come to light, nowhere near as good as some of those performances prior to all of this. I just think the statistical evidence suggests that Michigan was aided by cheating. No one wants to talk about this, but it is obvious to me, just looking at the results. Uh, so tonight, this afternoon, I guess, uh, my expectation is that Alabama will beat Michigan someone handily. And it's going to be really frustrating for Georgia fans to watch because Georgia fans will be, once again, forced to deal with the idea that if the SEC championship game could have gone just a little bit different, or if the argument for Georgia in the playoff could have gotten just a little bit more of a fair hearing, then Georgia could be laying waste to these other non-SEC teams just as easily as Alabama's about to, and that maybe Georgia could have you know, gotten one more crack at the Alabama Crimson Tide uh, in the national championship game, much like happened in 2021. But I sort of have a, have a suspicion that even though Michigan's been a small favorite for the, for the entirety of this month, I believe that point spread is built on the back of some faulty data. Michigan is not as good as their statistical profile suggests because they have been aided by cheating. And tonight, they're not going to have that to their advantage, and I believe that Alabama probably beats them up Fairly similarly to the way that Georgia did back in 2021, and Jim Harbaugh loses in the national semifinal for a third straight year. I think that's what we're heading for. We will see if that's the case, and we'll make that cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. Either way, we'll be back tomorrow to talk about all of that for the college football playoff and what it means from a Georgia perspective. But for now, we'll get ready to wrap up this edition of the show and somehow end up being kind of a long one, not really intending for it to be. But we'll do so with a golden shoe. Our buddy uh, Jermaine King shares this. And obviously last night, a lot of Georgia fans were reminiscing about when the clock struck midnight a year ago and where we all were. And by the way, last night, my wife was saying, because we were sitting together on the couch there for New Year's Eve, this is like the first New Year's Eve that she and I had spent together at the, at the stroke of midnight in quite some time because last couple of years, we've been celebrating Georgia national semifinal wins at that time. Jermaine King also kind of reflecting on that for his golden shoe, saying earlier this year, I convinced myself that I must have fallen asleep uh, early these past two New Year's Eve because I couldn't remember watching the peach or the apple drop at midnight. Then, he says, it hit me. I was awake both years and missed the celebrations because of the dogs. Yeah, Jermaine, our last couple of New Year's Eve have been special indeed. A win against Michigan in 2021, a win against Ohio State in 2022. Not able to enjoy that last night but certainly plenty of good memories of the two years that were and plenty of enthusiasm about what 2024 can be as well. A well-earned golden shoe coming your way for pointing that out. Very, very good stuff. And lousy stinking Gators, their New Year's, the same as the old year, more misery coming their way. It's been 1,150 days since uh, Florida has beaten Georgia. That's our Gator Hater Updater. And we'll begin the new year the same way we closed out the old year, which is laughing and making fun 
of those lousy, stinking gators. Y'all have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Dog Nation Daily presented by Pella Window Indoor of Georgia. We'll look forward to talking to you then.